are you ready for mass evacuations and personal branding? Welcome to another episode of the Security Management Highlights podcast from ASIS International. Every month, we focus on the trends and topics the world needs to know about your world of keeping information and people safe. I am your host, Brendan Howard, and today, Dale Buckner, CEO of security firm Global Guardian, talks mass evacuations. ASIS Europe Conference co-chairs Inga Habricht and Gavin Henderson talk risk and resilience and the upcoming conference in the Netherlands and online. And finally, Susanna Al-Sayed talks personal branding inside and outside your company. But first, mass evacuations. So how often do you have to think about evacuating a mass number of employees, family members, pets, etc.? Probably not very often. Well, Dale Buckner does. So where could the next big mass evacuation happen? And is your company covered? Let's find out. Dale, tell us where Global Guardian's team has evacuated large numbers of clients in the past few years. We, Global Guardian, as an entity, as a firm in the duty of care space, primarily to corporate America, have been involved in every major global disruption in the last 11 years. Um, to really kick that off and give it structure, 2015, the Paris attacks, we evacuated almost 200 of our clients out of the city in less than three hours, literally in some cases, while the attacks were ongoing. We had a couple that was in an opera house right next to the rock concert hall, where if you remember, 82 people were murdered savagely, very slowly and methodically. We extracted them from that in real time. From there, 2017, the two back-to-back hurricanes, which wiped out a large portion of the Virgin Islands and then Puerto Rico, We evacuated almost 3,000 of our clients, starting with boat movements and then ground movements to air movements. And then we were doing search and rescue with helicopters, primarily in Vieques and Puerto Rico. And this is a major evacuation event for us. Then we go into the Turkey coup, followed by the fall of Kabul, where we got almost 800 of our clients out of Afghanistan primarily by ground. We avoided the airport. We could see what a mess that was. Uh, We did do some private charter evacs prior to the airport becoming under siege. And then we moved almost 800 people through the border into Pakistan and then flew them out of Pakistan. And then most recently, of course, what's top of mind for most is we evacuated a little over 11,000 of our clients out of Ukraine and a little over 2,700 of our clients out of Russia in the first three weeks of the war. And then we've been supporting ever since. And I think my one comment there is this went from a corporate focused evacuation. Within 72 hours, this became a humanitarian evacuation where, yes, we were supporting corporate clients and families. And we were primarily serving that corporate executive or their employee. But what came with it after the first three days was extended family, grandparents, aunts, uncles, kids, There was almost not an evacuation without dogs, cats, fish, you name it. Pets came with the package. So as you look at this, you know, and looking forward, we're postured now for Taiwan and China. We're postured for potential conflict in Iran. We're postured for potential expansion of the war in Ukraine. So all of those things lead to, you know, a very simple answer. 
if there's a global disruption at the scale we're operating in and with the market share I have in corporate America and Europe, we're now going to be involved. There is not going to be, right now, we are still evacuating clients out of Turkey and Syria from the earthquake. There's not going to be any operation or any global disruption that we don't touch moving forward. Okay, so I want to ask two questions about that. One is, what kind of proactive work do you have to do internationally to have a presence ready to react to anything at any moment? Sometimes you can anticipate a coup looks like it's going to happen. Things are getting shaky there. looks like someone's going to invade. Other times, earthquake, volcano, hurricane, often out of nowhere. How are those, how's that staffing deployed? So the differential is the upfront, as you've clearly identified. That is accurate, right? We don't have foresight for the earthquake that just occurred in Turkey and Syria. I did not have foresight for exactly where the hurricane Ian just went in Fort Myers, Florida, or back to back to Irma in, in 2017. Yes, as good as the hurricane tracking is, the European model, the American model, blah, blah, blah. There's some level of foresight, but it's still never accurate. It never is, right? What is differentiated between a conflict where you see a ramp, the ramp up from Russia, posturing for about 60 days plus, and the political rhetoric starting even before that, versus a natural disaster is the differential. So yes, we are sending out for events that we can see like, yep, we're on the track and we can see the train coming. You know, we sent out prior to the invasion into Ukraine a, you know, a 42 page document saying ultimately the conclusion was there is a 65 percent chance that Russia will strike Ukraine by sea, land or air. There is a 25 percent chance this is a full blown conflict. They're coming across border to try and take the entire country. And there is a 10 percent chance of a diplomatic solution. If you add up 65, 25, we're telling you there's a 90% chance there's going to be conflict and it's going to be kinetic or physical, right? From that posting, and when we sent that to all of our clients globally, we then sent out 111 alerts as this transpired and kept ramping and ramping and ramping. So my answer is whenever we see a hotspot, we see conflict brewing, we are very focused on Israel and Iran right now. We're very focused on the US and China right now. We are very focused on the expansion of the potential expansion of what could happen in Russia and Ukraine. That being said, can there be a conflict tomorrow that wasn't predicted? Well, the entire global intelligence agencies didn't predict World War II and the invasion of Pearl Harbor. The entire intelligence apparatus did not predict or prepare us for 9-11. There are, you know, historical events throughout our history where these things happen and people didn't see it coming, the indications weren't there, or they just didn't believe it. I would tell you, and I can factually show you this data, that almost 70% of our corporate headquarters that we support did not believe they were not aligned with our assessment on the Russians invading Ukraine. They didn't believe it. Therefore, they didn't get ready. And the 30, you know, estimate approximately 30% of our clients that did believe it and did get ready, we had their people out in the first six days. The people that didn't believe it, it took three weeks because once the crisis starts, speed matters. There's only so many vans. There's so many, so many buses. There's so many, so many airplanes. 
all of those assets are now under pressure. And now you have checkpoints. Now you have more requirements at the border to get to a safe zone. Now you have millions of people on the road or at the airports trying to get out. So the lesson learned is this, being a first mover matters. Speed matters. And in order for you to have speed, you have to have real preparation, updated contact information, updated address, extended family. All those things matter when these things are forecasted. And when it's not forecasted, it's the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. This now is just respond and organize as quickly as possible, put together a baseline plan framework, and then you just go. And now you're calling audibles. You're adjusting to the environment as it comes to you. That really is the differential. What's kind of a first step to an audit to see how would you be ready for a mass evacuation? It sounds like first thing, you need to have gathered information about your employees, your sites, and their extended relations. If you're thinking somewhere at a time, you would need to lift up people and move them somewhere else. So my question is, where does this fall into the cost of having corporate security over a year? And how does it fall into what kind of insurance policies and things do mass evacuations fall into? Because I think as, as I've seen you write, you know, terrorism oftentimes is not covered by certain things. You think it's covered by insurance. It's not. Terrorism, war, these things are left out. So insurance policies, how can they cover you and how do they wind into this mass evacuation thing? Yeah. So I think now that the globe is so much more populated, and now that when you have a major disruptive event, if it's near a city center or a highly populated part of a country, you now have a population of people that are wildly exposed. So I think the combination of one, we've grown and we occupy a lot more terrain just from growing to, you know, we're at 8 billion people on the planet and ever growing, we have more exposure. And then you look at the frequency of global disruption. I can show you in the last five years, there are two to five major global disruptions events now every single year. So when you combine those two and you cross that axis, what you realize was 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago that people felt secure with just having insurance, thinking that, look, right. three quarters of my exposure of someone getting sick or injured, they're going to go to a hospital. That insurance is going to cover that, that hospital stay. I feel comfortable with that. If someone's on the road, they get sick or injured, we can get them a hospital, fine. Those are one-offs, if you will. And, and corporate America felt very comfortable by having that insurance and recognizing that risk and looking at actuary data saying, the probability of conflict, terrorism, natural disaster is only going to be at this frequency and it's only gonna, it's only gonna affect a very small populace. Now that's completely flipped upside down. Frequency is increasing, exposure is increasing, and now this is this is the big this is the big reveal. Having insurance for kidnap and ransom, medical services and medical evacuation, and for security evacuation. If you read the fine print of almost every single insurance policy in the world, there are restrictions. If you look at security response and insurance platforms, you haven't you have security response, but it's so myopic on what it covers. It does not cover war. It does not cover terrorism. It's not going to cover an earthquake. So when you realize you're buying a product to insulate and minimize your exposure, 
But then when you read the fine print, you realize that I'm not covered for all the major global disruptions. Yes, I'm, I'm covered for one-offs. And my employee is in Peru. This is a recent story. And they're isolated because there's protests because the president was just arrested. That would be covered. If the entire country collapses and there's now a war, they're not covered. And I think what you're seeing is that frequency of major disruption is now so much higher that companies are now forced, and this is the word, they are forced to not rely on cheap insurance, it's cheap for a reason, that has lots of restriction. So poke around in those insurance policies, people, and make a plan, starting with getting accurate information about people who would need to leave in an emergency, especially if you do business in a vulnerable place. Now, from Ukraine to Western Europe, where the ASIS Europe conference is happening in Rotterdam, March 21st to 23rd, and online in March and April. Conference co-chair Inga Habricht works at Radisson Hotel Group as SVP of, brace yourself, sustainability, security, and corporate communications. So before we get into the conference, Inga, do all those things in your title fit together easily? Yeah, thank you, Brennan. That's a question I had to reflect on when every time I got asked <laughs> to take on a new department, like how are these things connected and how do, we, do they actually work together or on a nexus? How do they serve each other? And the first time I had to do that was when my role was extended from sustainability to safety and security to be added on. And, you know, thinking about it, of course, there is an interconnection between the two in different ways. Uh, first of all, when uh, we operate around the globe, a lot of what we experience in safety and security are because of topics that are related to, for example, climate change, either directly or indirectly. So um, I would say safety and security is a kind of safeguard for what's happening and the impacts of climate change. But it is also to do with when you do things right in the location, when you are part of the fabric of a community, you're going to have the right license to operate. So in that sense, sustainability and being a responsible company also helps to increase the safety and security of your premises. And then lastly, the way we approach safety and security and sustainability in our wide network of 1,100 hotels in 90 countries is that you need to empower people. You cannot control everything from the center because it's just too many uh, different locations, too many different hotels. So what we do is we empower our teams through awareness, training, having champions on the ground. So in that sense, the way we approach it is very similar. And then adding on communications um, is also very logical. First of all, because people, guests, whether they are B2B or B2C today, they want to know what you are doing in safety and security and in sustainability even more. Um, so they want to know. So in that sense, we communicate about what we do. And then secondly, of course, when there is a crisis, and we've had quite some of those in the recent years, uh, how you communicate and how you are transparent about what's going on and how you manage that crisis communication is also part of my remit. So in that sense, there's also a very, very close connection. So I love it. Um, I'm waiting for the next department to come my way. I don't know yet what that would be, but... Um, Okay, you joked about adding, wonder what the next thing will be, but you kind of did add a thing because you are co-chair for ASIS Europe this year. Um, I noticed the theme was from risk to resilience, and I'm always curious, do, does this theme 
when I look at a conference, I wonder if themes sort of dribble down, if they they kind of funnel down into the content, or is it just like from risk to resilience, it sounded good, a couple R words, or did it really kind of inform how you organize in the content there? Well, I think, uh, and I'm happy to be the co-chair and to be working with the ACES Europe team on this uh, on this very exciting event. Um, so I think resilience is really a word that's at the core of companies' considerations these days. After the shocks, we've been talking about it, the pandemic, the invasion and the war in Ukraine, which has disrupted supply chains and energy markets, et cetera, et cetera. So resilience is there as the core theme for CEOs' leadership. And frankly, also, I think for safety and security professionals, I think that if businesses want to survive and thrive, they really need to move from the short term views and just in time to long term views, sustainability and just in case. So I, I think this is something that is very prominent on the agenda of company and organizations leadership. And therefore, it's very relevant to the safety and security profession. And so the themes that we have put forward, because we always get long lists of people who put suggestions for topics forward, they do connect. What challenges are you looking toward individually and also as an organization at Radisson into 2023 and beyond? Having gone through the pandemic and a big shock to the system, knowing we have to be more long-term, these big things could be coming down the pipeline. Are there some things you're thinking about this year and in the coming years when it comes to security? Well, for us at Radisson Hotel Group, the biggest challenge and opportunity is that we we have a portfolio of 1,100 hotels, but we plan to grow exponentially and double that in the next five years with a focus on uh, Asia Pacific and on a lot of, not everything, but a lot comes from emerging markets. So that in itself for me as part of the, the leadership team of the company is a challenge because we need to do that in a responsible way, both from safety and security point of view and from uh, from from a sustainability point of view. So that's tied to our net zero transition, et cetera. But that for me is the thing, we need to really look at this, uh, doing this right. So within our company, that is, a, that is a, a thing I'm certainly looking at. And then the fact that we've learned that we are going to have a volatile and uncertain environment. Shocks are not going to be over, they will continue. Uh, we are used to quite some to dealing with a lot in 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 a global hotel chain. There's always something that's going on every day, every hour of the day. But in terms of these big systemic shocks, I think we will see more of them, and we need to be ready to be agile in the business in the way we respond. And I think COVID has given us actually, in that sense, a good practice run because all of a sudden everybody had to be health experts and everybody was looking at safety and security to provide an answer, which we did, but we need to be aware that uh, that this is going to continue. And that relates then to the integration of um, consideration for climate change impacts in our investment in our supply chain models. So that is that's something that I'm looking at. And then of course, how the systemic, you know, the, the geopolitical systemic divide in the world will play out. Will it be worsening, uh, deepening this divide, or will there be some kind of breakthrough where there is uh, a lessening of tensions? And I think that is also in a global business like we are, uh, a very important thing to consider. The world would be better without so much trouble. That's a nice sentiment. Nations and peoples working together, governments and companies working together too, 
That's the dream of Inga's conference co-chair, Gavin Henderson. Gavin is VP and Regional Chief Security Officer at MasterCard, and he is especially excited to hear about one of the keynote speakers at this year's ASIS Europe on public-private partnerships in security. I think public-private partnerships has fast become an important topic within security. You know, the war in Ukraine has made protecting Europe's critical infrastructure, including digital infrastructure, top of mind for governments, law enforcement agencies, and indeed the private sector right across the industries. So the opening keynote uh, on the first day from Cecilia Bonfildal, Director General of Digital Europe, will aim to address a range of complex topics, right from cyber to physical risks, and speak to the benefits of a strong public-private partnership. So it's a very exciting start to the 2023 Risk to Resilience Conference. So maybe from your perspective, as things open up again and people two years ago weren't going to conferences at all for public health and personal reasons and legal reasons, and now it's kind of opened up again. When you talk about building trust and relationships, for you personally, how important is the face-to-face, in-person networking you get with, with colleagues versus things you could get from the phone or email or on these digital conferences? How is it different or how is it better being just in the room with people? I think, you know, giving professionals the chance to all, uh, you know, gather, network, you know, meet each other, people that haven't seen each other in quite a while. Um, People have, as you mentioned, have been dealing on a remote basis. They've been working in 2D, you know, again, back to the trust factor. It's all about seeing people. uh, It's like coming out of the cave for the first time. I think with a conference such as the Risk to Resilience, you know, it's the only show in town in terms of, you know, in Europe anyway. Uh, where you get a gathering of so many professionals from right across a broad range of industries, a broad range of topics, so many fantastic sessions. And again, you know, you get to break the bread and catch up. And okay, let's say you're breaking bread, you're catching up, and maybe you're building your personal brand too. That can be a touchy subject for some companies in security, according to Susanna Al-Sayed, founder of the marketing and branding firm Evolutes. Because it's not just about in-person. Companies need to start thinking about letting their employees shine out there on social media. And employees need to learn to take the leap, says Al-Sayed. So before we get into things that security professionals maybe should change or do differently, maybe you could tell me one way in the work you do in which you've seen security professionals are kind of well-poised for personal branding. So as a security industry, we generally function differently like compared to other markets. Uh, We're good at positioning ourselves and what we do when we are in person. However, we are unfortunately behind on social media and general digital like digital trends as an as an industry. So we need that interaction. It's a must. We can impeccably tell our story when a group surrounds us face to face. Hence, why as security professionals, if you want to achieve a particular career goal, um, networking and attending conferences are inevitable. We need that in-person exposure to remain relevant because it is a people-to-people, word-of-mouth approach. The security in general is based on trust and consistency. That is how we conduct business and get buy-in. However, how people conduct business, behave in corporate settings, and interact has evolved and changed. Um, So we need to adapt as well, which I don't think we have um, to a certain extent. So creating a personal brand and being relevant online is one aspect of getting ahead. 
and leaving a mark within your company and within the industry. Um, that is That goes both ways internally and externally. Because you never know where an opportunity might come from. It might be a recognition by another professional or department uh, within your company, or it might be outside the security industry overall because you're showcasing different type of skills that you have. So by establishing a personal brand and consistently having a presence on social, like on any social media platform, you're creating a safe space for your audience and your company. Well, of course, while still maintaining privacy and confidentiality agreements, uh, that never needs to be forgotten. So do speak to relevant departments that um, do take care of that. But I always tell my clients that if they do not expose anything operationally or post before and outside of business hours, the company or management should not be against that, um, especially if your discussion topics are outside of your day-to-day -day operations or your role. So I have faced that before at some level, and I learned a lot. Like you have a life, a personality, and goals outside your current employer. So you have your own authenticity. So you should leverage that, whether your goals are for internal promotion or external opportunity. So as an, an employer, you should encourage them to develop their professional and interpersonal skills instead of suppressing uh, the overall potential of your employees. So yeah, returning to the main question, because the security industry is risk averted, uh, averted um, it has hinged our progress, um, but we are getting better by, and by allowing more freedom of expression, of course, by remaining diplomatic and respectful, we can make the buying process internally and externally more convincing and fruitful. And that is what I was trying to cover in my article. Okay, so it's interesting, again, covering a lot of territory, that one article, you talk about buy-in and personal branding, and sometimes those feel different. So when I think a lot of times if security professionals think about personal branding, this may not be their intent, but I think companies and them may think about, this is me sort of, I'm making myself look better for eventually a promotion here or leaving right. the company going somewhere else. But you kind of overall put it under the umbrella of getting buy-in. And so I'm wondering, aside from the issues of trust and networking and face-to-face -face stuff that security professionals kind of do very well, what are other ways in which security professionals struggle with that way of getting buy-in internally or externally? So I love that question and I find it it being very simple, yet it is a very complicated question. <laughs> so it really depends on what you're trying to get buy-in for. So is it for new access control technology or is it for corporate travel or does your team need a new coffee machine in the office? <laughs> it's, uh, but all, all jokes aside, we struggle with buy-in because um, of the lack of relevancy. So when there is chaos, everyone turns to us. So not realizing that it takes like a lot of time to prepare for a crisis. Um, yet when things hit us unexpectedly, um, we often find security and emergency management teams that are understaffed and underfunded. Um, so my favorite, my favorite one is, uh, where is our business continuity plan? Meanwhile, a formal BCP was never formulated or completed. It's just like they think that they have one in place just because that's what needs to be in place. Um, or they just take it off of the right. shelf and it's dusted, you know, they just like go over it. <laughs> so um, if you find yourself in a situation where like your hands are tied um, after a crisis, it is the recovery phase that you should target and delicately pitch the buy-in. So that is a pattern I have observed in the public and private sectors. So it's basic psychology, protective instincts kick in. 
So that is when you pitch a more secure and refined program. When it's still not 100% resolved, um, but we're recovering from it and the, the, um, like it's still relevant. So, But uh, you also must make it realistic. Unless it makes sense, you can go from $50,000 to a million dollars. So you, you have to keep your goals uh, realistic. But usually getting your initial ask will already be a win. Uh, so to answer your question, we struggle with buying because of our relevancy in day-to-day -day operations. But once again, I want to emphasize it depends on who you work for, like whom you're working for, and what your role is. So this does not apply to everyone. However, like with COVID and now all the natural disasters that we're seeing and constantly being in a state of permacrisis, um, the dynamics and priorities are changing in our favor um, unfortunately, I would say, because it, it's just the world that we live in right now. So staying on top of the changes and being proactive will aid in any buy-in. So I think you touched on that a little bit and kind of presenting here are kind of optimum times in the preparation and then reacting phase where you yeah. can put in buy-in. From what you've heard from clients and in your own experience, how much of the selling internally seems like researching and practicing for a pitch to somebody? So having time to prepare mm -hmm. and how much are those soft skill things, that time that was put in to get to know and understand what people need over time. So the strong relationships you have with the people you're trying to get buy-in from versus I'm crafting a pitch to these people. Does it feel like the relationships win or the well-crafted pitch, or is it just the mix of both? The simple answer to this question, and I like to use this basic formula, which is just consistency. <laughs> it's a beautiful game of consistency. So nothing was built overnight. And if it was, it is not well done or it's a unicorn, you know, and I am personally very wary of fast success. It is like it always comes with unexpected consequences or circumstances. So I all the components in your questions on your question are relevant. So to sell internally, you must research, you must plan, you must manage, you must build trust daily, prove your concept, stay consistent and attempt to build a professional portfolio that brings you legitimacy within within and outside the company. As I mentioned in the first question, we are in an industry that functions on a word of mouth method. So build a rapport, you know, build yourself, invest in your idea, and the pitch is the end goal. The pitch is the end result. You must do the work prior um, in order for your pitch to be considered and looked as a product that can add value uh, to the company. Okay, when people think not about crafting a pitch for a plan or a pitch for a thing, more resources, or a pitch for a change in the processes and policies somewhere, but they're kind of pitching themselves. So, so the personal branding comes in. Um, there is some discomfort, and we were talking about this a little before this podcast, there's a little discomfort between the companies and the people working for them about what are they allowed to talk about? How much, if they're branding themselves, does that mean they're going to walk away? So sometimes that make man make management nervous. Um, how much about personal branding, about kind of knowing who you are and showing everyone who you are and making that kind of a daily message is internal within a company where you're branding yourself inside the company structure as this kind of person? Or how much is it, does it seem like when people come to you and ask, Ask about personal branding, it's angling for an outside or a lateral move. So I want to move around in here. So that is something only the individual in question can answer. So there is this fear, you're right, that the employees will exit the team 
and corporate world if they build their personal brand. Sure, that, that might be um, a possibility, but usually that is not the case. Um, that, that fear and control from the employer is what is pushing people to make the lateral move. So that is what is pushing them, is that fear and control. So because it becomes evident and suffocating, so especially if the individual in question is beginning to get positive attention and recognition externally, jealousy and like distrust um, sets in. Um, hence nurturing. So I, I think it, in the opposite, like nurturing someone's want and need for improvement and progression is what will help employers retain um, their employees. And as we can see, retention has become a sensitive topic because the new generation is not afraid to quit, you know, and it's, it's a cultural, <laughs> it's a cultural of gigs now. It's uh, everyone has that flexibility. So as a founder, like I have 16 team members. And so I think that too. Um, and I, I wrote this in another article about leadership when I pointed out that importance of finding what drives each of your employees. So is it money? Is it flexibility? Is it team spirit? Um, it can be anything. So I know it is more difficult to do that in a larger corporation, but there is always a method to make things work for your unique situation. There are professionals that specialize in this, that if it's really a problem of retention and growth and encouragement, there are solutions for that. So it doesn't matter if you're a small enterprise or a big enterprise. I like to use them. Um, actually, I like to really use the marriage example when I speak to uh, my clients. So. Would you want a partner that breathes down your neck, criticizes you, provides feedback without any positive reinforcement, and makes you feel incompetent? No, right? So micromanaging and controlling employees is, is the same thing. They need to feel like you trust them, like they have the freedom to be creative and have the ability to contribute in the way that they see fit, like they want to add value. And usually when you put someone into a position where they can add value, you'd be surprised how much they want to give, how much they want to be recognized for it. Today's employees want to express themselves out there. Yes, even security professionals who need to keep some confidential stuff under wraps. And that is it for the latest episode of Security Management Highlights. Thanks to our guests, Dale Buckner, Inka Habricht, Gavin Henderson, and Susanna Al-Sayed. If you're interested in reading more about these topics, check out the links in the show notes. And if you got excited about something here, share this with your friends inside and outside of security management. The world needs to know how vital and awesome this field is. And leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. We would appreciate it. Find us at sm.asisonline.org. And hey, be safe out there.